You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Gators Breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. And joining me for this episode is co-host Will Miles, and you can find him at his site, readandreaction.com, and on Twitter at WillMilesSEC. Well, hopefully we can be a little bit of escape uh, this here, you know, this get this Gators podcast here, a little bit of escape from the past couple of days. Of course, the uh, unfortunate uh, passing away of Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gigi and uh, seven others, uh, of course, uh, in um, a helicopter crash uh, there in L.A. Uh, on Sunday, of course, the, that's the big news, uh, of course, over the weekend. And uh, a lot of our audience out there is, has made their thoughts felt out there on, on social media, whether it be Twitter, Facebook, or however. And uh, dude, just a lot of thoughts out there just because, of course, if you're listening to Gators Breakdown, more than likely you're a sports fan. You're not just a football fan, not just a Gators fan. You're a sports fan just in general. And, and the name Kobe Bryant transcends uh, the game of basketball here. And uh, just, Will, you're, you're from up there, or you're not from there, but you're up in Philadelphia now uh, where Kobe Bryant uh, – you know, went to high school, made a name for himself before he jumped to the NBA. And uh, just an unfortunate situation here. And it kind of really hit hard for me. Um, I was outside in a backyard playing with my daughter, Hadley. And, uh, you know, that's basically, in a way, what he was doing at the time of his death, spending time with uh, his daughter as they were going uh, to, to a basketball game that he was uh, going to go coach there. So, you know, of course, with family and stuff, it, it does hit a little bit more home. And I, look, I'll, I'll admit I wasn't the the biggest Kobe Bryant fan watching um, him and my, my time, you know, through college and or high school through college and uh, through him retiring just a couple years ago. But, uh, you know, I always respected the way he played the game. He went. 100% every time he was out there on the court on, on the court the older I got the more I respected the way he played the game of basketball and uh you know really just a, a unfortunate heartbreaking situation yeah I mean obviously you don't expect your heroes to die at 41 you expect them to be around forever like Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and those guys who have sort of aged into uh, being sort of elder statesmen and you sort of figured Kobe would do that too because he's you know, he's never afraid to sort of voice his opinion when he was out there on the court, but he's also hasn't been afraid since he left. He hasn't really been front and center. It's not like he did what Shaq did and went on inside the NBA or anything like that, but he's managed to stay relevant doing the detail stuff for uh, for ESPN. And then, you know, INSQ, the, the player up at Oregon who he's been reaching out to, um, a women's star up there at Oregon, and, you know, she was, she and him apparently were texting on a weekly basis, and he was helping her with her game and things like that. So certainly he's still invested in the game of basketball. And, you know, obviously then you put the, put the added uh, – the added death of his daughter and the death of all the other people in the plane as well. And, and just really your thoughts and prayers go out to him. And, 
you know, I was never a huge Kobe fan. And usually I was the one rooting against Kobe when it came to the Lakers. That's sort of the way the Lakers are, right? They're polarizing. If you're out in Los Angeles, you know, Kobe is is really a larger than life character. And if you're not from Los Angeles, Kobe's a larger than life character just on the other side. So obviously really sad. Um, he's sort of a complicated character just in terms of, you know, the way he was driven, maybe in ways that other people weren't. And I think, you know, that I would say that when there was, you know, anybody who grew up in Florida spent a lot of time probably getting to know Shaq and then Shaq goes out to Los Angeles. And then if you, if you followed with Shaq, then you had sort of the Shaq Kobe dynamics. There's probably a lot of people in Florida who felt a little bit conflicted about those two anyway, but certainly whenever somebody passes away, especially as suddenly as this leaving a, uh, leaving a wife and kids behind. I mean, that's obviously a dad's worst nightmare is leaving somebody behind and, and uh, especially at that young of an age. So, you know, your heart goes out to them, your prayers go out to the family and uh, just hope everybody can can have some solace in in the time that they had with them. Well said, well said. So hopefully we can be an escape uh, here um, for the next hour or so here on Gators Breakdown uh, there. So what we'll get into this episode here is uh, last week, Will, we hit the uh, – you're looking forward to 2020 a little bit and areas for improvement. We have to look back to 2019, of course. And this week we'll do it for the defense. And also before we – Get off here. A little bit of recruiting news as well as uh, Justin Shorter commits to the Gators and a weekend full of visitors uh, that will update as we inch closer to National Signing Day. But before we get there, remember you can find Gators Breakdown on news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. You'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes there as well as news for Jack sports coverage and coverage of the Gators. Also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, a lot of you are watching live on YouTube now, so thank you so much for that. When using those services, please share, rate, and review the show. And on social media, follow Gators Breakdown on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. And just a reminder, uh, speaking engagement uh, for the Fight Gators Touchdown Club, uh, I'll be in Gainesville on April 23rd, and that will be right after the spring game on April 18th that the Gators announced last week. So April 18th for the uh, – Orange and Blue debut, and so uh, there'll be plenty to discuss as I'll uh, be in Gainesville just a few days afterwards uh, to speak to the Fighting Gators Touchdown Club in Gainesville. The rest of the schedule this spring consists of Gators basketball writer Chris Harry on February 27th. March 26th will be Coach Savage and head coach Dan Mullen on May 28th. So a uh, pretty good spring schedule uh, for those guys at the Fighting Gators Touchdown Club. So, Will, let's uh, get into this areas for improvement for the defense here and probably the most popular aspect of this defense because of defensive coordinator Todd Grantham and his reputation for defense on third down. So we'll look at this uh, past season. The Gators were ranked 40th in third down conversion defense in 2019, giving up 36% third down conversions. Leaders Wisconsin only gave up 27% of third downs on the season. And look, the game's we remember this being an issue. The two games are here, Kentucky and, and Georgia. Uh, LSU just didn't have many third downs at all. That's how efficient their offense was against Todd Grantham's defense here. But Kentucky and Georgia, two games uh, I looked at here is there. Uh, Kentucky went 8 of 15 on third down. That was good for 53% uh, when Florida's average was 36%. Florida was going up against Sawyer Smith, who you know really had no business having the success he did early on versus Florida's defense and you know, him making his first start for Kentucky there. And you know, that's what kept them in the game. That's what kept Kentucky in that game uh, as the game inched on on Kentucky's second drive of the game. They went three and out on the first drive. So, okay, good start there. Uh, but, you know, Wildcats converted third and 21, we all remember. And then uh, third and eight 
and then a third and nine for a touchdown on that second drive of the game. Then they went on to convert their next five of six before the Gators defense shut them down uh, in the fourth quarter of that game. So, look, there was plenty of times to to not let that game stay as close as it did, especially on the defensive side of the ball, give your offense more chances to score uh, in the first three quarters of that game. Uh, this, of course, that's a game Felipe Franks went down, Kyle Trask comes in, and in a way the defense started playing better too. So, uh, But then, of course, the big one, the game versus Georgia with the Bulldogs converted a whopping 12 of 18 on third down. That was good for 67%. Will, that was 67% when Georgia averaged 41% on the season of converting third downs on our, on offense. So that was good. That was good for 50th in the country. Georgia's offense was 50th in the country in converting third downs, but they converted 12 of 18 on the Gators that day. Third and Grantham was alive and well. Remember, just on Georgia's first drive, they converted a third and 14, a third and 11, a third and one, a third and six, before finally getting stopped on a third and 11 to set up for a field goal. But, look, there was no sense in giving up a third and 14, a third and 11 for an offense that was struggling, going, you know, heading into that game. But then the dagger at the end of the game, Florida's only down by a touchdown after a lengthy drive by the offense. Defense had to get a stop on third down, and you had Georgia third and seven with two minutes, 53 seconds left in the game. Fromm completes the pass to tight end Eli Wolf for 22 yards. Brad Stewart had a chance to make a play, but Wolf makes the catch on him, allowing UGA to salt the game away. So, Will, two examples there, two games, but specifically the Georgia game where the uh, third down defense, third and Grantham, as uh, the fans like to call it, of course, uh, just reared its ugly head. Yeah, well, I mean, this has really been sort of Grantham's M.O., not necessarily the third down conversions. I think that's what people sort of think of when they think of Grantham. But the thing I think of when I think of Grantham is that good, experienced quarterbacks take advantage of his defense. And, you know, early in the year, there was that special where he was talking about basically trying to get to the quarterback with four guys. But his defense was designed to make it so that the quarterback didn't know where that fourth guy was coming from. And I think in some cases, his defense is – like that's true, but if you can figure out where it's coming from or if you can force him to have to blitz to get pressure, then then you can really take advantage of it. And that's sort of what happened in that Georgia game is Florida was forced to blitz because if they tried to just bring four and play zone behind it, Fromm had forever to sit in the pocket. And and in some respects, that's kind of what happened against Kentucky too. Now, you can go back and say some of those fourth and four, or third and 14s and third and 22s and those things are, are – uh, unacceptable. And I think you'd be right. But the other thing is, if you look at the, if you take out the Kentucky and the Georgia games, they're probably sitting there about number one in third down percent. I, mm. I don't know that that was really the downfall of, of Florida's defense. I mean, I think it was when they came up against experienced quarterbacks, they got torched. And then, and that sort of points, I think, to when, um, you know, when you've got really strong quarterback play, guys who can throw open their receivers, then a secondary that is, that is limited in terms of its its talent profile can struggle a little bit. Yeah, I, and I'm going to get into that too. There's some other parts of the defense to where it is kind of nitpicking, as you said. You look at those two games for the third down, and you know, besides those two games, yeah, it really wasn't that bad. Uh, but you know, one reason I'm doing this, you know, the, the areas for improvement is because look, Florida's Florida's close. Uh, 10 wins last year, 11 wins last year. You can start kind of nitpicking a little bit and things that we need to see improve for Florida to take that next step. Yeah, but I also think, you know, you, you go and you look at points per game against FBS opponents. They gave up 18.3, which ranked 12th in the country. 
They gave up four well, before, well, well, before you go in there, yeah. And I'm, I'm talking third down defense against Georgia, but look, they still held Georgia to 24 points. Uh, yeah. You would think, you you know, you should probably win the game in certain situations. Well, and the other thing is, is it's not as though the offense was really sustaining drives for the yeah. first three quarters and keeping the defense off the field. And, and it's a team game. I mean, I think if you'd have told me before the season started, that Florida was going to have the 12th ranked defense in terms of points per game allowed and the 21st in terms of yards per play, I would have said, take it. <laughs> Look, yeah. Absolutely. Like that's going to mean that you got a top 10 team with Mullen and his ability to make the offense hum. And really when you look at it, I mean, neither unit was really a weak link, but the weaker link was the offense this year compared to the defense. And when you look at the games that they lost or the games that were close, um, you know, the LSU game, the offense was that's the only game where the defense really couldn't hold its weight against Georgia. You could claim the third down is is a place where where the offense or where the defense didn't 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 pull its weight. But the offense didn't really pull its weight in that game either, especially early on with some of the false starts and and running out the clock and calling timeouts and those sorts of things. Yeah, wristbands. <laughs> Well, and then maybe the only other place is is the Virginia game, but even that, it was after the game was out of hand, and and really, you know, Florida was sort of up by two touchdowns almost the entire game, and then in the second half, the offense just sort of meh, didn't really do anything t- towards the end. So, uh, you know, there are times in every season where an offense is going to have to help a defense out, and this year against LSU, the offense tried to bail out the defense and couldn't. This year against Georgia, the offense couldn't bail the defense out, and the defense wasn't terrible in that game. Other than that, defense played well enough in every game to win, and that's why Florida's 11-2. and two. So I, I do – you know, look, there are places to improve. We need to talk about that. But at the same time, I, I think it, we do have to say that this defense was really close to being a top-10 defense. And, um, you know, if they can take just incremental steps next year, um, then they have an opportunity to be really, really good. Yeah, I think that's where it is. It's situational defense and big game defense. And that's kind of what I'll be going through here for areas uh, of improvement that I want to see. Extending the third down conversation here. Third down defense, it it does need to improve. Uh, It was 53rd in the country in 2018, uh, Grantham's first season here, uh, two seasons ago with opponents converting 37%, uh, while the leaders in that category were allowing just 25%. So, Oddly enough, Will, in Grantham's year at Mississippi State in 2017, the Bulldogs ranked 10th in the country in third down defense, only giving up third downs 30% uh, that season. The year before, in 2016, when he was at Louisville, hey, look, again, 10th in the country as well. Uh, 2015, 35th, kind of similar to what he's doing here at Florida. Um, uh, So, yeah, 35th. And in 2014, his first season at Louisville, the Cardinals were 10th and third down defense again. So you know, third down defense wasn't really an issue the, the 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 few seasons before he came to Florida, but we all know where he got the moniker from, third and Grantham, because Florida used to use it <laughs> against uh, Todd Grantham in his time at Georgia uh, before Louisville. His last season at Georgia in 2013, the Bulldogs were 64th in the country and giving up third downs at a 39% clip. year before, 2012, 37th. In 2011, all the way up to third in the country uh, with 29%. And then his first year at Georgia, back in 2010, the Bulldogs were a dreadful 80th in the country, giving up 42% of third down. So Grantham has an average ranking of third down defense in his 10 seasons as a defensive coordinator in college football of 34th in the country. So, Will, not terrible. That's about what we've seen these last two years at Florida. But not great either, and as I've outlined it's more about the situational third down defense and in the big games. 
Yeah, Matt, I don't know what you want me to tell you. The uh, <laughs> the profile of Grantham coming in was that he was a good defensive coordinator, but not a difference maker. And I think we've gotten more out of him than I would have expected based on that profile. But we've seen some of the warts, right? That the um, when he was playing back against Georgia and playing a lot of zone and and really the only time he started to bring pressure was when Florida made that game close and to not deviate from the plan when Fromm spending hours back there and, and not getting harassed by anybody from Florida's defensive line, you know, says something about sort of a stubbornness about his scheme. And sometimes that's a good thing, right? I mean, sometimes you don't want to back away from what you believe in. And I think, you know, again, he hasn't shown to be a difference maker in recruiting at least at previous stops. Maybe we can say that's changing here, but he hasn't proved, proven to be a real difference maker as a defensive coordinator other than turnovers. And two years ago, we saw the turnovers specifically with Ja'Kai Polite. I think that masked some of the shortcomings of the defense. I think this year the turnovers sort of dried up a little bit. Not not completely, but they did start to dry up a little bit. I got a, I got something on that coming up too. So. But, you know, I mean, you had the great performance against Auburn. You had a mm-hmm. really good performance against Tennessee. The Kentucky performance was uneven, but in the third and fourth quarter when Trask came in and led them back, the defense had a fourth down stop right after the Franks injury. And really the defense is the reason Trask got the ball back and was able to win that game. They were able to hold South Carolina in the second half after the South Carolina basically run roughshod over him in the first half. And, you know, the, the thing is, is like, I like looking at, so if, if you were to tell me, so the Florida offense this year had 13 explosive plays, so 20 plus yard plays on the ground. Right. And mm-hmm. so we, I think we can both agree that Florida's offense was pretty bad when it came to running the ball. Are, are you with me on that one? Yep. Their defense gave up 14 explosive plays on the ground. So, <laughs> so really the, I think my recollection of how bad the defense was against the running game is different than the reality. I think the same thing kind of applies to third down defense. I think there are patches where you just look at it and they couldn't get off the field. The defense was inconsistent. It wasn't necessarily bad in any one area. So you look at the overall stats and you say, hey, everything looks pretty good. But then you go and look at the tape of the Georgia game, and you're like, God, they couldn't get off the field. And then you look at the tape of the LSU game, and you're like, well, everybody else was like that against LSU. (laughs) So – yeah, so there were a few warts, just like and, there were a few warts on offense. I think that's sort and of those runs thing. you talked about there. I mean, what was it? LSU and the South Carolina games back to back, where they gave up some big runs. Yeah, well, and I mean, so if you take that away, there were seven there, which yeah. means they only gave up seven twenty-plus runs the rest of the year. Yeah, and again, if you look at Florida's offense, they had sixty-six explosive plays, thirteen on the ground, fifty-three through the air. Florida's defense gave up 49 explosive plays, 14 on the ground, 35 through the air. That's where points come from. The reason that they were ranked 12th in points per game is because they gave up so fewer, they gave up so many fewer, you know, 17 fewer explosive plays than the offense was able to get. Can we talk about how lucky they got with some of the busted coverages that didn't get completed? Well, I mean, you know, I know. What is this, man? Why, why am I being positive? You're being so I negative. I to say that. Usually, I, I, I'm much higher on Grantham than you are. Something's <laughs> changed here. Well, nothing's changed. He just oh, is no. who he is, right? No. It's the same thing when we talk about recruiting. That that nothing, in in my view, we're, nothing has changed extensively. But at the same time, I'm not going to sit there and harp on it all day. Grantham is who he is, right? There are yeah. there are quarterbacks who can take advantage of the defensive scheme that he's putting in front of them. And if he doesn't make adjustments, they're going to continue to do so. Now this year, that was Burrow. 
that was that Mom. was from and that was Perkins for Virginia, right? The good news is is next year the only guy who sort of fits the experience of a decent quarterback, and I'm using decent in quotes here, or very, very liberally with experience is going to be Jarek Warantana. That's going to be the only guy who they face really. I mean, Holinsky was awful last year. You've got, I mean, well, maybe you've got Terry Wilson coming back. Yeah, but. Newman at Georgia, but not the experience of going against a Todd Grantham defense. Well, and I don't, I, I think when you talk about profiles, I think Guarantano actually had some better stats last year than Newman did. So I, don't I think, tell pro football focus that, well, you know, pro <laughs> football focus only spends all, all their time looking at film, but you know, look, I think there are probably arguments you can make for Newman, but I think the sort of, at least for me, the quarterback and the way the defense plays against the quarterback is something that I'm always looking at. And for Florida's defense this year, they they played 13 games, and only 11 or and only two of the 13 games did they have a yards above replacement against them that was above zero, so above average, and that was LSU and Georgia. Yep. So really, what it boils down to is when they played teams that had better talent than them the defense struggled when they played teams that had worse talent than them. The defense excelled. And when your quarterback, when your quarterback outplays the opposition's quarterback, you're going to win a lot of games. And that's really what it boiled down to. You look at Trask's play throughout the year. There were games where he didn't play real well. So like the South Carolina game jumps to mind, but Holinsky was so bad in that game because of Florida's defense that, that Trask was able to get away with not necessarily being at his optimum efficiency. Um, Vanderbilt, <laughs> the yards above replacement was minus 5.03, then minus 2.21 for Missouri, minus 2.88. I mean, anything below. So I think Felipe Franks in 2017 was like minus 1.8. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times this year, Florida held a quarterback to worse than 2017 Felipe Franks. Um, the defense played really, really well this year. It's just, again, those Grant, Grantham. I, it's interesting. You, you talked about all of his third down conversions and, you know, sort of over the years at the different stops he's had. It would be really interesting to go back and look and say, all right, where did most of that come from? Did they yeah. play a schedule of experienced quarterbacks in the years that he was, in the years that they were bad? Or is it just happenstance? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, at least every time I've looked at games that he's, that he's been at at Florida. It's always an experienced quarterback who's given yeah. him trouble. The only ones I can remember who weren't was Sawyer Smith earlier this year and then Terry Wilson. So for some reason, Kentucky sort of flunks yeah. too, but. Um, Eddie Green is a darn good offensive coordinator. So I'll give him that. <laughs> well, certainly what he did with Bowden this year seems to indicate <laughs> yeah. that, that he, that he kind of knows what he's doing. So, yeah, again, I, I'm not, I, I'm not here. I don't, th- I think Florida will be hard pressed to replicate what they did last year. On defense, I, I think if they stay level, that's probably progress because they did outperform their their underlying yards per play metric when it comes to points per game. But they also did that the year before too under Grantham, and and it's a huge step up from Randy Shannon two years ago. So uh, I I hesitate to be too critical of Grantham or the defense just because they're better than I think they probably should be based on some of the underlying statistics. Yeah, and some of this, and people out there who know me and follow me. Well, on social media, I'm more of a, a Grantham defender than I am a detractor out there. So uh, I'm one of the ones out there glad he's back for a third year, uh, honestly. And you know, the players that they're getting on defense, recruiting the way they're doing it now, are more fit to his style. Uh, so we'll, I, want, I want to see it play out uh, that way. And well, I mean, and also go back, though, 
And you, of course, you can make this case for every coach and a lot of the situations here. But you know, it was a coaching and a player contribution here for some of the third down uh, lapses here. You know, there were plenty of times where the players there to make a play. You know, the most recent one I remember specifically, Marco Wilson in the Orange Bowl. There's a play right there on, uh, on third down, right, right there at the sticks. He's three yards short. He dismisses the tackle, and the receiver goes and, and gets a first down uh, on, on third down just because Marco Wilson misses the tackle. So it's not you know just because Grantham's uh, you know calling his own or calling a man or calling a blitz, not calling a blitz. Sometimes the players are in position, and as I mentioned, the, the last one versus Georgia, Brad Stewart's in position really to make a play uh, on the ball against Eli Wolf. Eli Wolf is the, is the guy who come down with the ball there. So you know it, it, sometimes it, it's the player. They're in position. They just don't make the play. So, you know, we'll see. There's much debate about, you know, why this may be an issue and, you know, you know, leads to other improvements the Gators have to make. And going on to the next topic, Will, getting sacks and, and in turn getting turnovers and, and playing more aggressive in the secondary. And is, you know, I'm going to just keep going back and nitpicking, you know, the, the, the two games here, uh, LSU, Georgia, no sacks versus LSU in Georgia, only one versus Kentucky, 49 on the season. None versus Georgia, none versus LSU, one versus Kentucky, 10 versus Miami, eight versus FSU. Uh, and look, uh, injuries definitely played a part into in what happened midseason here. Um, uh, you didn't have Zuniga for most of the season. Zuniga, uh, Grenard both tried to give it a go versus Georgia. I don't think they were anywhere close to 100%. But you can't fall off the face of the earth in big games in a stat you are known for. Uh, no turnovers versus LSU in Georgia. No pressure. No turnovers. Uh, I think those two are, are going together there. No sacks, no turnovers. You know, and that's one big area of improvement here, especially versus Georgia, where those two stats have been an issue the last two seasons, Will. One sack in two games versus Georgia and no turnovers the last two years for Grantham uh, in his defense versus the Bulldogs. So hopefully improvement comes in the form of uh, Jake Fromm leading. That, that's going to, you know, that, that, that's going to be, that's step one. Uh, but, you know, but, but Grantham has to show up in that game in particular. Now there, the players do as well. Uh, so, you know, looking at all this, it, it is nitpicking and uh, what we're looking at, but we're looking at for, or for what I'm looking at, areas of improvement, I'm going to nitpick here. Uh, but, you know, that's what you get to do when you win 11 games and want to take that next step. You have to look at the issues that kept Florida from winning the two games they had chances in that they ended up losing. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you mentioned the injuries to Zaniga and, and Grenard, and obviously that made a difference, particularly with Grenard, because he, you know, Grenard proved that he could get to the quarterback when he was fully healthy and and had the ability to to put his full repertoire moves on display. I think this is one of the places where where Brenton Cox becomes really important in 2020 is, you know, you can protect your secondary if you can get to the quarterback with four guys and Florida in big games against teams with talented offensive lines has struggled to do so. And so against LSU this year, that offensive line, albeit probably holding the whole way was able to mm -hmm. keep people off of Burrow. And then Georgia's offensive line is a lot of five-star guys. And, you know, they didn't necessarily run the ball real well with Swift this year. They didn't necessarily put up enormous numbers, but when push came to shove, when it was third and four, Fromm had three, four, five seconds back there to find an open guy. And, 
you know, you can criticize the defensive backs for some of their play, and rightly so in some circumstances. At the same time, if if a guy's got seven seconds to throw back there, no defensive back's going to be able to cover it. So you look at Cox, and then I think you look at Dexter that they're bringing in. Obviously, you know, thrilled that they've got a guy who's now a consensus five-star coming in as a full recruit who's going to come in as a true freshman and hopefully contribute immediately. But even Derek Wingo being a linebacker at 79, overall national rank him coming in and then you got Jahari Rogers and potentially Avante Williams coming in as well who'd be top 100 guys back in that secondary so I, I do think that they're adding an awful lot of talent particularly when you factor in some of the guys who are staying so Marco Wilson and and uh, and some other guys who are staying are going to be able to hopefully allow the defense to take a step up but it really all starts with Cox Cox is gonna have to be able to replace production not just from Grenard he's probably gonna have to replace some of the conduct some of the production from Zuniga as well you're gonna is that Players like Zach Carter is going to have to, you know, show up, and we see flashes, but it's got to be consistent. Well, and and I think that's sort of what you saw after the LSU game. So going into the South Carolina game, you know, Carter had been pretty absent for most of the season, but then after that, you started to see him flashing much more often. Mm-hmm. And and they also started moving him inside on passing downs. And that's one of the things that when you had Grenard and Zuniga on the outside, you could bring Carter in the inside and let him rush the passer. It'll be interesting to see what happens. If Dexter is as good as advertised, and I'm pretty sure he is, then you're going to have a guy roam in the middle there. And is that going to free up Cox and Carter on the outside? Because you get push up the middle from, from somebody who's who's really an elite guy so you know we're relying on some unknowns up front but i think it's really high talented you know really really talented unknowns up front and mullen has proven that he can do a lot with guys who are um maybe limited but now he's going to have some guys up front who aren't limited and it'll be interesting to see if grantham can get guys to the quarterback and and sort of allow the defensive backs to take some take some chances because i think that's one of the things is if the quarterback's going back and he's got five seconds to throw, the defensive backs can't take any chances. They can't sit on routes. They can't do anything like that. And they end up tentative. And then when they end up tentative, you know, a guy blow, guy blows right by him and you've got those blown coverages you talked about earlier. So um, I think there are some opportunities there for the guys up front to help the guys in the back end. Yeah. And uh, kind of along that same vein there, Will, turnover took a dip in the second half of the season. I you know, I remember that. I just didn't looking at the stats. I was really surprised at how 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 much that happened. Um, only three only three less turnovers gained with twenty three this past season compared to twenty six in twenty eighteen. But in the last seven games of the season, and starting with the LSU game, the Gators only forced six of their twenty three turnovers in those final seven games. So of course. As I just said, the headline was getting none versus Georgia and LSU. So the the the, the number itself wasn't necessarily an issue, but it was when the turnovers came uh, this season. Defense did a great job at home versus Auburn and, and forcing Bo Nix to throw some interceptions. But going back to your point earlier, Will, Grantham does that versus young, inexperienced quarterbacks here. So uh, another example of uh, the experienced quarterbacks getting the best of Grantham. Yeah, and and obviously the LSU game, because of some of the injuries that they had up front coming into that game and coming out of that game, they were struggling against the run as well. And so, you know, when when a team's able to get four or five yards on first down, then the quarterback is able to get the ball out quicker. You don't force them into a lot of third and longs, those sorts of things. And, and certainly then struggled a little bit to get the turnovers. But, you know, part of that is also a lot of times turnovers occur because you're getting – you're getting driven on a lot, right? I mean, somebody drives down the field and you have to force a turnover to, turnover to get the stop. You know, with South Carolina, that wasn't really the case. Vanderbilt, that certainly wasn't the case. And then Missouri and FSU, that wasn't the case. And so I'm not real concerned that they weren't getting 
I'm not real concerned they weren't getting turnovers in those games because they were forcing the offense into situations they didn't want to be in. So again, I think it goes back to if you're a less talented team, you're going to have to win the turnover battle against those big guys. It's not necessarily critical that you win the turnover battle against teams that are not quite as, not quite as talented or not quite as good. I mean, we saw that in the Miami game, right? I mean, that game Mm -hmm. should not have been 24 to 20, but Florida was able to pull it out, even though they lost the turnover battle, I think what, four to one or four to nothing, something something like that. And so, yeah, the, the fumble, the muff punt. Yeah. So yeah. that, was a, that was a Miami turnover. Yeah, uh, and they don't win that game. I mean, the game against Auburn, I think we remember that as being something where Florida dominated the game. But you know, if if the if the defensive tackle for Auburn doesn't get doesn't get taken down by a sniper, and, and if uh, and if they don't get a couple of turnovers in that game, then 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 it's possible Auburn would have won that game too. So you know, this is the reality: is that fumbles, especially, are luck based. And interceptions require pressure to force the quarterback to throw before he's ready to throw or force him to mm-hmm. airmail one. Or, I mean, if you, if you leave a guy back there, I don't care who he is. If you leave a quarterback back there and just say, Hey, we're going to give you all day and let you throw for the most part, you know, he might miss the guy, but he's going to miss him in the right area, right? He's going to miss mm-hmm. it where the ball goes out of bounds. He's going to miss it where he throws it low and where only his receiver can get it. Um, He's not going to miss it where, you know, somebody can undercut the route and get the interception. So I think that's sort of what you're seeing with the turnovers is as the injuries mounted on the defensive line, the pass rush started to go down. um, Then you also saw the decrease in turnovers. And also kind of going back to the LSU game, it's not like they didn't get pressure at times. Joe Burrow was just that good (laughs) at times as well. I mean, how many times, especially in the first half, he just escaped the pocket, got away from pressure either made a run himself or found a guy down the field and, and completed a pass. So, I mean, there was pressure uh, in that game as well, but quarterbacks making plays uh, as well. So, well, I think, uh, of course, we moved to players here and areas for improvement and kind of just going to all these points we just made. Uh, lack of consistent playmakers at the safety and nickel. Um, what happens with Trey Dean coming up this season? Probably he's not probably not the biggest fan at playing safety, but – Look, the moving side to nickel didn't go too well uh, when Marco Wilson had to fill in at times. So I'm sure we'll see something where uh, Amari Bernie, Chester Kimbrough are players that fill in that role. Uh, Bernie in the Orange Bowl played uh, there in that star nickel role uh, a bit. But Bernie can slide over at linebacker at times, uh, you know, certain formations, certain situations we saw plenty this year. So that gets Kimbrough uh, on on the field. But – at safety, it didn't matter the four last season. The inconsistencies were there. Uh, you had games where it was Sean Davis and, and Donovan Steiner were making plays, but also too many times where uh, those two, along with Jawan Taylor and, and Brad Stewart, looked lost, out of position, uh, out, out there as liabilities. The trade Dean take to a role uh, as a safety? Even uh, if, if he doesn't, it's mostly the same players that will be back there. Jawan Taylor will, will be gone, but everybody else is back. You know, can they take the experience from this past season and, and get better from it? You know, why was there so much communication leading to, to, to busted plays? It's something that had to be figured out this offseason. Maybe too much rotation between the four led to, to, led, led, led to the, some of those opportunities there. Can they settle on two guys that play the most? This was, this was one group I thought would be fine this past season because I was so high on Brad Stewart and his 20 2018 season that didn't translate to a better 2019 a lot of questions here will yeah absolutely i mean obviously taylor is has graduated won't be back and then you've got um and then you got bernie maybe sliding into that role in the start but i I think i think we need to be a little bit 
think we need to be a little bit careful about pouring the dirt on on Trey Dean. So Dean obviously struggled this year. He was playing outside corner his freshman year because he was forced in in a in a situation with the injury to Marco Wilson. Then they're like, oh, well, we'll move him into star. And I think we, I think we would be wise to remember what happened when Chauncey Gardner Johnson was originally moved inside. Now, obviously, with a worse defensive coordinator and a worse coaching staff, but you know there were a lot of people who were sort of up in arms with the way Chauncey played. You know his his sophomore year there inside and then his junior year he was a heck of a player you know in 2018 and to the point where he was able to leave and go into the NFL draft now I'm not saying that's going to happen with Dean but I'm saying we need to be a little bit careful when we look at a guy like Dean and say oh he's not good he's not you know he's not going to play well in that space I mean Gardner Johnson struggled against the run and Mm -hmm. you know got run over a few times and and some issues there and was much better in pass coverage than Dean I think Dean struggled in pass coverage more than he did against the run but you know, at the end of the day, these guys all have an opportunity to develop, and we saw that just a couple years ago with a guy who struggled in a specific role, came in, Grantham was able to put him in a space where maybe he excelled a little bit more, but also he's just a year of experience makes a difference, and I think the same thing will probably be happen for, ha- will happen for Dean just because Dean has talent. The question is, can he get his confidence back, and can he start to play a little bit better? Um, and then you mentioned the four-safety rotation. I, I don't think they had the luxury of – not rotating those guys mm. because every time you brought in two and they started to play well, then you had a busted coverage on the back <laughs> side. And so then you see the other two safeties come in and, you know, a missed tackle, a bad angle, all those sorts of things. And, you know, I, I know people pick on Steiner. He wasn't the only one. I think people, you know, Sean Davis played really, really well early in the year, but mm-hmm. I think struggled a little bit towards the back end. I think you look at, uh, the guys like Jaden Hill and Kyrie Elam and Chester Kimbrough, those are guys who maybe are going to free up, the ability of just competition, right? That yeah. that if there's some issues with Dean at star, then Marco Wilson can slide in. If there are some issues with Wilson at star, then Amari Bernie can slide in. And if there are issues with, with Hill, Elam, or Kimber on the outside, then they've got some high top 100, top 125 guys coming in who will be able to step in and, and maybe be – um, contributors at the corner position early on. And that's one of the areas where it's pretty easy to contribute just from a scheme perspective. So I, I think the defensive backs are going to be okay. I think everybody will probably take a step forward in Grantham's scheme this year. But I think it's also the reality is, is that when you look at the overall recruiting profiles, the guys who are back there, Stewart, I think is the only guy who's a four-star guy. And, um, you know, there have been some reliability issues with everybody who's back there. So, um, you know, and, and again, I go back to, Florida's defense was, um, you know, 35th in yards per attempt through the air. So they were good, but not great. And if you were going to say, where's Florida's defense going to improve? Where is the area they can improve? I don't know if they're going to be able to improve that much against the run. I think the area they're really going to be able to take a step forward in is pass defense. Yeah, Kimbrough's the guy I'm really looking out for there. I think he's uh, the guy to look out for in that star nickel role uh, as he will be uh... – uh, you know, playing in his second year here. So one, we'll, one thing we one thing we should say is that you know I, I think people look at offense and say what we're really missing is that guy who can take it to the house who can be a real difference maker. Yeah, and I think it's sort of the same thing on the defense, right? Is that what they're what we really need is the guy who's going to lay the hit like like major yeah. right against Oklahoma at the safety position. And and what we really need at defensive tackle is a guy who can take on a double team and still push him into the backfield. And, and that difference maker is the thing that's missing on, on offense and defense right now in terms of Florida being an elite team. I mean, when, when LSU fell behind, you knew that Burrow was about to throw it deep to Jamar chase. 
and and you knew it because that was the guy. And and yeah, he could hit Jordan Jefferson, and yeah, he could hit the tight end Moss. But at the end of the day, in that game against Clemson, when they were down seventeen to seven, you knew he was going to Jamar Chase. And Florida doesn't really have that guy yet, who's established himself on offense, and they really don't have that guy yet on defense. The guy who's gonna who's gonna come up with the giant play when it really matters. We haven't really seen that. It's been sort of a a team effort, and also a team effort when the coverages have been busted. And um, it'll it'll be interesting to see whether some of these new guys coming in, or some of the guys who were highly highly touted recruits when they came in, but now have a couple years in the system, are going to be able to step up and be that kind of player. Kyrie maybe you know, we saw it in the Orange Bowl. Uh, so maybe, as you said, Will, he's the guy that we can consistently try and look for that playmaker there uh, and help get some of these turnovers. So uh, any uh, any other aspects of this defense will that you uh want to say before we uh, hit this recruiting news no i mean i think the big thing is is that the run defense was fantastic last year mm-hmm. and that's really surprising like i wasn't expecting that when i went and looked at it and, and a player you know elijah conliffe missed the season uh you know so you'll get some depth back from him uh going up for uh um 2020 and as you mentioned uh, you know of course the defensive line recruits coming in led, yeah, by, De- when- led by dexter and I think there were early in the season, TJ Slayton really struggled. I think towards the end, he started to get a little bit of push, started yeah. to get a little bit more comfortable with what he was doing. We already mentioned Carter. Um, Ankrum started to play a little bit better towards the end of the year, and obviously he's not there anymore. But um, And then they started getting Bogle and Diabate into the into the rotations as well. And those guys obviously are going to put some weight on over the offseason and probably be much more significant contributors than they were early in the year. Though obviously Diabate had some pretty big games, um, even as a true freshman. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of reason for optimism, but obviously Florida's going to be going to be relying on quite a bit of youth on the defensive side of the ball. And, you know, I think, I think in some respects, that's a good thing. I mean, you want to inject some youth into the team when you don't necessarily have, you know, guys who are just jumping off the page athletically, if you can add some of those guys and let them get experience against the schedule. And that's maybe the other thing is to mention is that the schedule just next year really sets up mm-hmm. nicely for this defense. They aren't going to come up against the quarterback. I don't think who's the level of from, or the, I mean, I doubt anybody's going to come up against somebody who's the level mm-hmm. of Burrow. But, you know, from from for two years was an excellent quarterback for Georgia. Obviously, he struggled last year. But, you know, the guy knows how to make good decisions when he knows what the defense is doing and when his team is able to give him time. And he was able to show that against Florida. So they aren't really going up against anybody like that this year. And I think that's probably going to make – that would be one of the reasons why I'd be really high on the defense more so than any particular players or anybody stepping up. Just the idea that – the scheme itself seems to be really effective against quarterbacks who are average or below, and that's pretty much who they're playing in 2020. All right. Good look there. Good look there. From our areas of, of improvement for this Gators defense heading in to 2020. So as I mentioned, let's get to some recruiting here. And the big news of the weekend, Will, Justin Shorter commits to the Gators. Uh, Shorter, a New Jersey native, um, you know, transfer from Penn State here was the number one wide receiver in the class of 2018, number eight overall recruit in the 24-7 sports composite rankings. Uh played at Penn State the past two seasons. So as a recruit, Will, his measurables came in at 6'4, 213. But this past season, Penn State had him listed at 6'4, 235. It's basically adding 20 pounds here. 24-7 sports original scouting report of shorter read uh could play a number of spots in college. But the best uh, choice is wide receiver, and he is committed to Penn State to play there. As a receiver, he will continue to develop his ball skills and route running, but he is quick out of his breaks, high points the ball well, 
He has speed to get down the field. His size makes him physically difficult for cornerbacks to jam him. He can block, and as he gets stronger, he will get better at it. He has the length and frame to add weight, be a very good outside linebacker as well because of his burst, ability to change direction, and his instincts. He covers a ton of ground quickly in three steps, and that is from Brian Dawn of 24-7 Sports. So, Will, this is a, this is a player that's fast. He's big. Great acceleration, four or five, 40 yard dash. For whatever reason, it just didn't work out at Penn State. Uh, but, you know, another big time wide receiver transfer to go along with the likes of, of Van Jefferson. And we saw what he just did in his career at Florida. Uh, Trevon Grimes, who's still on the roster. Jefferson, we saw last week getting lauded at the Senior Bowl. Uh, and Grimes returning to be one of the main players at wide receiver for the Gators in 2020. Uh, there's a highlight out there of shorter. Um, that's floating around out there on Twitter. And, Will, you'll love this. It's a running back making a big play, and here's Shorter sprinting down the field to go make a block and help his uh, help his fellow running back. I'm sure Billy Gonzalez, Dan Mullen, uh, saw some uh, potential there with, with kind of a play like that, the, the care uh, of playing for your teammates like that. And uh, Gator's getting a, a big-time potential wide receiver here. Yeah, well, you know, you, you don't get on the field in the Dan Mullen offense unless you're willing to block if you're a wide receiver. And it's interesting you gave his measurables. I mean, so Kyle Pitts is 6'6", 239. Yeah. And this guy's 6'4", 235. And I know there are some commentary there's some commentary out there about Pitts sort of being a glorified glorified wide receiver, but the reality is is that the more guys you can add in that vein, 6'4", 235 is somebody you can move in, move out. Florida does a lot of things where they have bunch sets with the wide receivers coming in and essentially being tight ends. Um, you get this guy on a safety or, or you get him on a linebacker and you're going to be able to take it to the house. So obviously shorter. Anytime you can bring in an elite recruit, um, I'm fully on board. Um, obviously you'd love to bring him in as a freshman and have him work in your program for three years and then go to the NFL. But when you have the opportunity to bring in a guy like this, you got to do it. And certainly with the attrition that Florida's seen at wide receiver, if he can get the ability to play this year, he's going to get an opportunity. And and if he has to sit out a year, then, you know, we'll, he'll be, he'll be there as we have to replace Grimes and Tony coming into 2021. Yeah. Well, and look, this is just another example of Mullen improving the roster to the transfer portal. Uh, now three five-stars have come through the portal since last August. Britton Cock transferring from Georgia. Lorenzo Lingard transferring from Miami. And now Shorter, all these five-stars to go along with the, you know, the history of Jefferson, Grimes, Jonathan Grenard, Adam, Adam Schuler. You know, those guys are the standard for, for transfers coming into Florida and, and improving their career and improving the team at the same time. So, you know, if you're out there, if you're a believer in five stars and, and recruiting rankings, then, you know, these are certainly upgrades uh, that Florida has gotten through the transfer portal uh, in, since August. So here, so, you know, now it's time for these guys to, to go get developed and, and become contributors and, and live up to that billing. But history showed the staff knows what they're doing here and they've done that. So we may have to wait until 2021 for shorter and Lingard. We'll, we'll, we'll see if they pursue and, and can get waivers. Uh, Lingard will pursue one and it's unclear if shorter will pursue, pursue one as well. Uh, will, but, uh, 
then Mullen knows how to work that transfer portal. Yeah, it certainly appears so. I mean, they've obviously had a lot of hits with with Grenard, who was a three-star guy, but obviously played much better than that this year and probably going to be a first-round draft pick. And then and then Van Jefferson and Trevon Grimes, though Grimes is an interesting case because they're going to get three years out of him, yeah. which, you know, for the most part means it's almost like a <laughs> – it's almost yeah. like you you recruited him into your own program originally, and they got two out of Van Jefferson, and they knew that they were pretty much going to be able to get waivers for both of those guys when they came in. So um, I, I think the the reality is is that the transfer portal is a way to pepper over or to paper over holes that that you leave either through recruiting or through the previous staff. And there were some holes in that 2018 class. Normally, there's a third-year dip for most head coaches because there's always a hole in their transition class. They're coming in. They're trying to make make do with the previous relationships that the previous staff had, trying to piece sort of piece together various recruiting classes. I think Mullen was a little bit fortunate that Florida State was going through the same sort of transition at the mm-hmm. time. And then he put together a very good transition class. I mean, you know, anybody who's who's – who's read any of my stuff knows I actually was very complimentary of Mullen's first recruiting class. It was the second one that, that was a little bit concerning, but you know, to be able to add these guys to, to add to the overall talent profile is very, very important. The thing is, is that when you, because these guys are one and done, if they perform the way that they should, then you got to sort of keep chasing the transfer portal. Mm-hmm. And at some point, Flor- and, and Flor- and Mullen is slowly building, right? I mean, his, his, his recruiting classes have gone from, I think, 14th to 9th in this year, probably going to end up around 7th. So they're slowly building. But at some point, you're going to have to be in that 3rd, 4th, 5th range. Otherwise, you're going to have to keep chasing in the transfer portal. And eventually, you're going to have a guy who gets injured or you're going to have a guy who's a bust. And then you're left in a situation where you're a little bit thin. And that's the only risk with doing it. Um, certainly Mullen has proven an ability to, to pick out those diamonds in the rough and get them to play. And if he continues to do that, then I'm excited to see what these guys are going to do. All right. Speaking of making the roster better, well, we got to look for some targets here. Uh, so shorter, c- new commit, but everybody else who uh, was on the visit this weekend our players that Florida is looking to bring into the fold here as signing day approaches and Big one right now, former Oregon commit Avante Williams visited this past weekend, and uh, news came out of the visit uh, was him tweeting that he will no longer visit Georgia this coming weekend. The Bulldogs were thought to be the biggest threat to the Gators, but for now, that visit is not happening. Miami could be in play here, but this looks like a uh, a great situation for the home team here, Will, after this weekend. We discussed about seeing better safety play in 2020, and that could include a player like getting Devontae Williams on the field uh, early. So you know, I'm not suggesting uh, you know, a true freshman come out here and get thrown in there in the fire and go out there and be successful. But you know, hopefully the returning players can step up. But Williams, 5'11", 175, 170 pounds, 55th ranked player in the country, according to 24-7 Sports Composite, the second ranked safety in the country. And the state of Florida's tenth ranked recruit. Yeah, well, one of the things about defensive backs when you start seeing those national rankings is that most of the time that's based purely on athleticism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like when you see a corner up there pretty high, or you see a safety up there pretty high, I think. And again, I haven't gone back to look at it, but I suspect that those guys turn into stars more often than say a left tackle or or even a defensive tackle because. Um, you know, you're, you're pretty much looking at the guy's athleticism and certainly if they have football instincts, maybe that's something where you, um, where you upgrade them for that. But a guy who's ranked 55th at defensive back is going to get an opportunity and, and going to get an opportunity pretty soon. And we already mentioned the schedule 
this year. And I think that schedule is going to help ease people in as well. Just because, you know, you've got Eastern Washington, I think, to start. And, you know, really the, the schedule doesn't pick up until you hit the SEC. And, uh, you know, so there's going to be two or three games where they're going to be able to get some of those true freshmen's feet wet, decide whether they're going to want to redshirt them or whether they're going to want to play them full bore. As opposed to this year where maybe you had to go with more experience in that Miami game, knowing that you were going to need that experience coming into a game against a Power 5 opponent. They don't have that coming up in 2020, and so maybe you'll have an opportunity to work in some of these younger guys in a way that maybe they couldn't in 2019. Yeah, and we just got through talking about that safety, those those guys in the secondary, but you add Williams to a pretty good secondary class already. Uh, that includes another safety, Rashad Torrance, Mordecai McDaniel, who may you may fit in at safety, Javez Johnson uh, as well to go along with Avery Helm, Jahiri Rogers, Ethan Pouncey, uh, and then hopefully that playmaking ability that I brought up earlier uh, gets shored up in the in the years to come with this group led by Williams. If you choose this Florida, now, these are the type of players you need to get coming out of your home state. These high profile players and keep building that secondary depth. Well, and like you said, I mean, you mentioned Pouncey and Rogers, but remember those guys are already there. Yeah, those guys are early enrollees who are already practicing. So by the time you get to fall practice, those guys are going to have six months in the strength and conditioning program. They're going to have six months of proving to the coaches that they can learn the scheme and those sorts of things. So as much as I think maybe we get excited about a guy like Avante Williams and and rightly rightfully so, right? Anytime you bring in a top a top 60 guy you want to be excited about that and you should be excited about that i think there are guys coming in in this recruiting class who maybe will even have a leg up to contributing in in 2020 just because of their being there early and being in the program early all right well the big uh one of the other big stories coming out of the weekend is the recruiting of the running back spot and uh gators have both jameer gibbs and Ashad clayton in Gainesville over the weekend, and like I, I've long thought it would be tough to get Gibbs to, to flip from Georgia Tech. Still think that after his uh, visit this weekend, but it's definitely, definitely still worth keeping an eye on. Uh, Clayton, a Colorado commit, gets his Florida offer over the weekend. Mullen goes in home this week with him as well. Uh, the four-star out of New Orleans will be tough to pull from Colorado as well, but, you know, but this is the last chance for Florida uh, to get a blue chip running back, it seems in this class, you know, struck out on Bowman. Uh, I don't think Gibbs will come, but it's like I said, still worth watching there. Um, decided to move on from Zach Evans. You know, Clayton Clayton scheduled to visit Colorado this weekend, and will decide on signing day between Florida and Colorado. Uh, will so early in this process for for Florida you know, after missing on Trey Sanders last year, uh, Florida was going all in on Bowman uh, early in this cycle. I had no issue with that whatsoever, but in doing that and then missing there, you know, they, they put them behind the eight ball uh, for some other high profile running backs. So we'll see how it plays out. You know, of course, we, st- we definitely still have to wait there. Uh, but right now we're about, you know, a little over a week from, from, uh, from, from signing day, two classes in a row where we know you've missed your top targets, Trey Sanders, Demarcus Bowman here. Uh, you don't get either one of these guys, Gibbs or Clayton, you know, really really looking like you know having a hard time pulling in some elite running backs well they'll just wait for those guys to transfer and then they'll come <laughs> that, that's and, and jokingly you know they did get lingard just a, you know a few weeks ago five-star transfer running back you know we'll see if he's eligible or not but that that can't be forgotten either no absolutely not but i mean this is really the difference between a coach who's a good recruiter and a coach who's an elite recruiter right or a staff that's an elite set of guys uh, and when it comes to recruiting and a staff that's good. Like no one's saying that Mullen isn't recruiting well. They're just saying that he's not recruiting at the level of Alabama, Georgia, LSU, and Clemson. 
And, you know, we're going to see it's, it's a fascinating experiment because we're going to see whether he can take the talent that he's got and regularly defeat those teams that are in the top tier. Now in 2020, he's got an opportunity because three of those, you know, LSU, Georgia, and Alabama are going to take a step back towards the pack because of the quarterbacks that they're losing. Um, and, and again, if he can take one more step in that 2021 and get up into the top five, then that gap closes even more. But, um, you know, the, the reality is when you got a guy in Lakeland who's a five-star guy and he goes to Clemson, that says something about things. Obviously, Clemson's a really good program. They're going to pull guys from time to time. But you need to win those battles. And I can understand why a running back wouldn't want to go to Florida right now. I mean, you watch the offensive line this year. You watch the guys get hit two yards behind the line of scrimmage. There's certainly an opportunity for improvement there. I think maybe if they show some improvement on the offensive line. And then, um, you know, one of these days is going to hit their top target just because he's going to be a guy who always wanted to go to Florida. But you kind of thought that would be Bowman. So it's a little bit disappointing that they weren't able to bring him in. Yeah, absolutely. There. And last one, last uh, uh, recruit from this past weekend to check in on Demarcus Beckwith, athlete from Alabama, three star uh, coming in at six four two fifteen, the three hundred eighty first ranked player as an athlete. Came out of Tennessee visit last weekend, saying Florida leads, and that still looks to be the case after his visit to Gainesville this past weekend. If you take him for his word here, will another player? If you want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, the staff showed him film of how Kyle Pitts was used and, and Pitts comes in at 66240 as you mentioned uh Beck was 64215 you know so bigger than Beck with but looks like it could be used in the same manner as a mismatch with size and speed yeah man if if you look anything like Kyle Pitts how this <laughs> offense operates you should be just begging to come to Florida exactly and that's the reality and I, and I think that Pitts is obviously a special special player but if you get a guy with less speed, a little bit more of an ability to block, and similar size, I think you can put him in the same situation. And mm-hmm. so, you know, one of the things that I think you um, or that programs may be able to do is is isolate guys who would normally be larger wide receivers, guys you'd classify as an athlete, move him inside, and all of a sudden he's going to be a little bit better player than maybe you thought if you were going to have to split him out wide. Um, I think you see the same thing a lot of times with guys who start as offensive tackles and then they get shifted to guard, and all of a sudden they play a lot better at guard than they did at tackles just because they had some physical limitations. And that may be the case here where you get a guy who's got some speed, a guy who's pretty big, say, hey, we're going to we're gonna put you in that pits role. But at the same time, I do suspect that if Trask is the quarterback next year and Pitt stays healthy, we may be talking about Pitts in terms of, you know, not exactly the same thing, but you know, there's always people talking about the next Percy Harvin mm-hmm. and, and, and there will not be a next Percy Harvin. I think in some respects, it's going to be really hard to get the next Kyle Pitts. I mean, you say, Hey, we'll, we'll utilize you in the offense this way, but he's a unique talent. He's got some unique abilities and it's going to be a, when, when he decides to go pro, I'm assuming after next year, um, it's going to be hard to replace him. Absolutely, absolutely. So, well, before we wrap up here, I want to get you to uh, over at your site, readreaction.com. A uh, new writer that you introduced uh, today uh, over uh, on the site, Read and Reaction. So, uh, give our listeners a little bit of a, a preview of, of what's going on over there. 
Yeah, so Nick Nutsen's joined the team, and he was uh, he had reached out and expressed some interest in writing about the 1980s, which is sort of the forgotten era of Florida before Steve Spurrier took over. So he's got a series going on. Part one came out today that was uh, so it's titled "Give Him Hell, Pell," and it's it's going to be I think a five part series. It's going to sort of go over a, a, a era of Florida football that a lot of people forget, but I think laid the groundwork for some of the stuff that uh, that that came later. I mean, most people think of the fun and gun as being when Florida, the sleeping giant, really woke up. But there used to be some signs in the swamp that talked about SEC, you know, first in the SEC teams mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, that Florida was able to put together really good teams and just wasn't nece- doesn't necessarily get the credit because of some of the probation that went on and some of the some of the rule breaking that went on. But you know, again, back there in the back there in the eighties, I think the SEC was pretty notorious for cheating. <laughs> doesn't seem too different than it is right now. <laughs> but uh, but it, it was really an interesting read. I you know, it's one of those things where I admittedly didn't know very much about that particular era and nick was able to able to put it in a way that i thought was really interesting so yeah go over take a look um you know he's going to be writing about more contemporary stuff once this one's done too but uh, i thought it was a real really well-written article and and an interesting insight into the program we all love yeah and that is one argument that gets on my nerves of, of non-Gator fans. They want to, and, and rivals, they want to poke fun at Florida. Ah, Florida was nothing before 90 and Spurrier. Well, the, the 80s were pretty darn good. You know, sanctions be, you know, be, yes, you got to count the sanctions a, a bit. But uh, in the 80s, look, Florida won a Heisman Trophy in 66 with Steve Spurrier. I mean, and there were some pretty good years in the 60s as well. Were they the national power? Were they among the elite then? No. But uh, to sit here and say Florida was nothing before Spurrier was kind of uh, uh, kind of not, not true in, in the sense. Yeah, well, and I think I think it was like 10 of the 11 guys on defense in 1984 wound up playing in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there were a lot of good players back then, and I, and I think the players more than anything. I mean, so you got a coach who goes out and, and does some things that gets Florida in trouble from a recruiting perspective. or But there were some major violations that were cited as like, you know, he bought somebody like some toothpaste or something, and they called that a major violation. Um, you know, but the players – you know, those guys love Florida as much as anybody, and I, I'm sure would appreciate if they put those first in the SEC signs back up as an acknowledgement of the sacrifice that they gave to the program. Because, you know, whether you think that Spurrier was the guy who took it to the next level, he took it to the next level from a program that had had taken a step forward. Uh, under Charlie Pell and then Galen Hall. And so, you know, that did sort of, I'm sure that led to booster contributions. I'm sure that led to school pride. And I'm sure it sort of built into what Spurrier was able to then supercharge when he took over in 1990. And that doesn't mean that Spurrier doesn't get credit for turning Florida into what it is today. It just means that those guys in the 80s had a big part of it too. And and I think they're often overlooked. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, vague memories there for me. Uh, but that you know, I was I was born in '83, so I did the uh, you know the '84 team and all that. I have to go back and read, and, and there's some good YouTube videos out there where you can you can find some stuff. But uh, yeah, it's more about uh, taking a look back at that point. It's just interesting to see the swamp with astroturf. Yeah, <laughs> you go and look at some of the video. You're like, and orange jerseys all the time. Oh yeah, and uh, and you know Georgia still had the ugly uniforms. So. <laughs> All right, that is Will Miles. You can find his site at readandreaction.com, and you can find him on Twitter at Will Miles SEC. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. 
guys and girls out there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Get Your Quick Break.